All right, so let's get into this. I'm going to just open up with scripture. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, I have learned that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I have forcefully proclaimed as true what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and teach you, Job. I had heard of you by the report of others, but now my eyes see you. I've experienced you for myself, therefore I reject myself and only find comfort in dust and ashes. That's from Job 42. And if you're wondering the version, that is the ESV with a little bit of Jesse translations and notes. So, <laughs> all right. So a lot of men like Job have lost all they had. And some of us have felt that way, even though we haven't, right? I'd say that's a pretty defining moment when you feel like you're losing all that you have. The, jo the story of Job strikes at our heart because of the loss, because it's in the Bible, but also because of the impact that it had on others. Think about it with Job. It wasn't just Job that was afflicted. His children, all of his children died. A bunch of his employees died. His friends who came to comfort him were, were uh, scorned by God. And the list goes on. Others were impacted there. And the verses that I read, they really capture the moment that Job was not just, it wasn't just a defining moment. It was when Job was redefined as a man. Can we all agree that those verses capture uh, that essence of Job basically facing God and crumbling before him? I would say that's a redefining moment. So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about life's defining moments. Uh, last week we heard from Pastor Mike. I thought Pastor Mike was awesome. Do you all agree? Yeah, absolutely. He gave a few nuggets. Here was my favorite. He was talking about experiencing life's defining moments, and he made the comment that the key is being fully engaged in the moment. Fully engaged in the moment. I don't know about you, but I struggle a little bit with that, so I wonder how many of life's defining moments I actually miss. And I can guarantee you, though, if you face God like Job did, you are fully engaged. So... I want to be full engaged, but I'd rather not do that. All right, so hopefully I can find it from within. All right, so Bill and Mark and I have been walking through this topic. We've had a chance to meet and really kind of talk this through, which has been absolutely awesome. If you ever get a chance to, to do this, uh, if your table captain asks, jump at it. It is just a great opportunity. It's, it's a little nerve-wracking up here, but all the prep is really wonderful. So let's see, we were thinking about defining moments, and as I thought of mine, I started thinking, like, there's way too many to count. They're just a lot. And if you would have asked me a few weeks ago or a month ago when I really, you know, should have been prepping for this and, and maybe had just started thinking about it, I don't know. I couldn't have told you that many defining moments. I would have said the normal. Uh, you know, when I got married, when I found Christ, you know, or he found me, th those type of things. But as I sat here and really thought about it, I came up with quite a few. I'm not going to share all of them. But I, I do want to kind of shotgun you here, rapid fire, and give you a few of them. So at 18, I left university after one semester. I was playing football, I was going to school for economics, I left, I ditched, so that I could start a business. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And to this day, that business still failed. It absolutely did not launch. It completely changed everything that I, I had planned in my life, and I was bummed about it, and it took a long time for me to see what God did in that. At 24, I was on a plane. I was traveling to San Diego for business. I don't know, I don't remember where I was living at the time, but I was going to San Diego for business, and I met a guy named Chris. Chris was in the window seat. I was in the aisle seat, two-thirds of the way back on the plane, five uh, rows behind the emergency exit. Yes, I do remember that because of Chris. And I don't remember people's names on planes. 
I remember Chris because Chris was literally, at 24 years old, the first Christian that I met who was two things. A, not crazy, and B, didn't feel like he was judging me. It took nine years for that defining moment to really set in until I really gave my life to Christ. At 26, I was asked by the corporation that I worked for as a corporate investigator, and I was asked to be part of an elite team, right? There were 60, 70 investigators in this corporation amongst all the divisions, and they asked 10 to come and help them with a drug investigation. I was one of the 10. Are you feeling good about me? I'm feeling, yeah? All right, so we did our briefing, and then they started handing out case files, and everybody got two or three case files, except for me. Guess how many I got? One. No, not zero. Who said zero? <laughs> Thanks, Jim. I got one case file, and I'll just be honest with you, I was humiliated. Right? I mean, this is a small group of people. Uh, well, it was actually a big group of people because it was 10 investigators and about 30 executives. I had one case file. I was humiliated. I was certain they thought nothing of me. And I wonder, why am I here? I figured it was a pity invite, you know, something like that. So it ended up being a very defining moment for me because I decided right there and then that I would not let their perception of me define my character, define who I was. It was about a year later that I was promoted to director. I was still 26 when I was promoted to director, right? So defining moment. In the fall of 97, I swore off relationships literally for the rest of my life. I was done with women. Absolutely 100% done. Hallelujah. Exactly. Yeah. I actually became a theist right around the same time. I knew God existed. Couldn't tell you much about him. Had way more questions than answers. At that same time, yes, Christine, my now wife, because God does have a sense of humor, she actually was giving her life to Christ. We didn't know each other, but it was that same month. We met three months later. And then, of course, yes, went on to have a few. In June of 2003, I gave my life to Christ. I didn't feel joy or burden lifting. Some of you have felt that, like you give your life, you submit, you're, you're in, and it's like, ah, oh, hallelujah, and you, you feel your sins lifted and that thing that you cared forever. You know, think of Pilgrim's Progress, and he takes the weight off the back. You felt that? I didn't feel that at all. I actually literally went into the dark nights of my soul. I felt like he had abandoned me. Literally, the only image I had was sitting at the doorstep of the kingdom. Not in inside the kingdom, outside on the porch. For six months, I was depressed. I grieved as if I'd lost my best friend. Man, I'll still get emotional about it, and that was a long time ago. But God eventually brought me through that. The dawn came, I moved on, um, and eventually he showed me what he did that for. And I will tell you, I won't go into the uh, detail on that right now, but he gave me one of the greatest gifts that I could possibly have had in terms of my faith by doing that. It was not just happenstance. In 2010, my friend Stu kept hounding me and hounding me and hounding me. And Stu spoke at Ironman before. And he kept saying, hey, you got to come to this group of guys. There's a guy teaching right now. His name is Dr. Cooper. And he's teaching on Revelation. And you got to come. I think he was hounding me when I was, I was out of the country for six months. And I think he was hounding me during that time. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And he just kept coming at me. Well, I eventually I showed up at David Hill's house through the wrong door. I left my shoes on, which I wasn't supposed supposed to. And that ended up being a very defining moment. I ended up becoming part of Ironman. And I just, for some of you, you know me in this way, but for me to join something, for me to join something like Ironman is a small miracle. I am not a joiner of things. I don't care to wear t-shirts with logos on them. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't have bumper stickers. My boys would ask me when they were younger, why don't you have bumper stickers? I'm like, that's not who I am, you know, and I don't really care to tell people who I am. So for me to join Ironman and for me to be part of this is a major, major miracle. It's not a small miracle. It's a big miracle. All right, almost done here with this 
this rapid fire. Each time my wife and I had a child, and yes, we have only five, something changed inside of me, and some of you can relate to that, right? There was hope that sprang, but also a sense of responsibility that just continued to grow and grow and grow. And I will tell you, when we had our first kid, I always thought, hey, if everything fails, if you know some of my risk-taking fails, etc., we can always move into my mother-in-law's basement in Ohio. I love Ohio, all right? The second one came and I realized, okay, that won't work anymore, we won't fit. And then the third one, and then the fourth one, and then the fifth one, that responsibility just kept growing and growing and growing. And with that came despair. So hope, responsibility, and despair. And you say, despair with your children? Yes, because every single one of them continued to reveal the inadequacies that I had as a father. And now that they're teenagers, they revel in exposing the inadequacies that I have as a father. It's horrible. And then in 2009, I left Disney. I was with Disney for 10 years. I left Disney after 10 years. I'd love to tell you that, man, it was a great plan. I, I did all the, the right things. I will tell you that I cheered for my exit. As I was leaving, I mean, I, I prayed. I was just giddy. I mean, I would have sang in public. That's how happy I was. It was great. I cheered the leaving, but not the timing because it was not my timing. See, I had let stress from multiple levels build up in me. On the job front, it was just a stressful job. I mean, it was, it was a 24-7, very stressful job. A lot of stuff was on the line. But I also had experienced betrayal, was experiencing just significant integrity issues within certain parts of the company and within certain parts of my world. And I won't go on, but it was significant. I thought I handled it. I thought, hey, you know what? God's taught me to submit to authority. That's what I'm doing. I'll do the very best that I can. And then this moment came where a bunch of other stressors had just taken place and a guy who worked for me, who I look, I still look up to, I love him. He's a friend. I admired him. I always joked with him about, how is it that you work for me? This doesn't seem right. You know, he was a retired colonel from the Army, MACV. He's the real deal. Very cool dude. Well, he totally disrespected me in a public venue. I mean, just, and it was a weak moment for him. And he disrespected me. And my response, for some of you, if I told you exactly what he, I said, you'd be like, okay, it's Tuesday. Yeah, we're good. That, 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 that's what we do. That's how we deal with people. But for me, it wasn't my norm, right? As a Christ follower trying to be an ambassador of Christ in a very non-Christian workplace, it was definitely not very good. And then, of course, within uh, Disney's policies, I was right on the fringe. So what that did was that prompted, it, it gave my detractors, people who were trying to get me fired since before I even joined the company, not because of me, but because of what I represented, right? So 10 years before, for 10 years, it gave them ammunition. And short story, it led to me needing to resign way before my time. The great news is that before I even resigned, before I'd even made that decision, I'd started a new company because I already knew what I was going to do. I decided in 2005 what I was going to do. So it just, I was slow. I had to be kicked out of the nest because it was very comfortable there. Since then, I've been in this job for 13 years. Best job I've absolutely ever had. A major life's defining moments. All right, so those are a few of my life's defining moments. Sorry to go on, maybe that was too long, but I wanted to give you those because, A, I know I don't share a whole lot, so I wanted to share a little bit of my testimony and I keep being convicted of that, that I need to be a little more open. Ask me a question, I'll tell you anything. I just don't necessarily offer it, right? But more than that, I wanted to see if I could prime your pump, if I could get you thinking about your life's defining moments. So you saw that I gave you a broad swath and I hope this is triggering things in you as you start to reflect on this. So when Mark and Bill and I started exploring this topic, we, we were talking about 
what life's defining moments were and all that good stuff. And I just want to give you a few things. First of all, we found that they have a few things in common. They have the ability to profoundly impact you and others. They can act as a flashpoint, causing you, forcing you to make decisions. And at their best, life's defining moments becomes life's redefining moments. In fact, maybe even their refining moments. We also found that life's defining moments leave you with certain emotions or perspectives. They can bring you to despair. So think of Cain after he killed his brother Abel and Yahweh shared what his consequences would be. And he said in Genesis 4, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. I would say that's pretty significant level of despair. They can bring you to submission and discouragement. So David showed both of these after he slept with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed and then Nathan confronted him and then Yahweh's consequence was that one of his babies would die, right? A baby to be born. And he grieved and he fasted, but the child died. And in 2 Samuel, we read that then his servants said to him, what is this that you have done? You fasted and you wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. Again, that is submission. That is actually, there's a bit of discouragement in there. Life's defining moments can also leave you with clarity and sometimes even a sense of alarm. Uh, we see that in Adam and Eve after they sinned and Yahweh approached in the garden. We read that, and they heard the sound of the Lord Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord Yahweh among the trees of the garden. But the Lord Yahweh called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That defining moment led to fear, a sense of alarm. But these defining moments can also bring you hope and encouragement, right? So I give you three negatives, I gotta give you one positive. They can bring you a lot of hope, a lot of encouragement. So when Isaiah felt like his people were saying that God was nowhere to be found, he replied this way in Isaiah 40. He said, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives you power to the faint. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, though they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Exactly. I'd say that's pretty encouraging. So to know the size of a man, don't look at his height. Don't look at his accomplishments. Look at what has defined him and who has defined him. Think about that. Insignificant men are defined by insignificant moments. Moments of self-love and self-lauding. Moments boasting of their victimhood. Moments boasting of self-righteousness and glorified trauma. Our significance doesn't come from that. Our significance comes not only from the size of our impact on others, but our ability to let others and God's moments actually define, redefine, and refine us. So to close here, the preacher in Ecclesiastes 
gave us the purpose for all of life's defining moments. He said this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every single thing, whether good or evil. All right, guys, thank you. There are three questions that your table captains have. I hope, I hope this primed the well for some good discussion to talk about life's defining moments. Thank you.